Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. I'm Elsa and welcome to the first episode of 2021. I hope you've had a lovely holiday period whether you've been celebrating or not. Here in Stockholm we had some snow on Christmas Day so it's got quite a nice cozy Christmas feeling to it when we're recording this. Yes and I'm Chris and I also had an excellent Christmas now we're going to start our podcast in 2021, not with a chronological episode of our history, but looking at our first special episode of 2021. We're taking a break from our usual chronological episode structure to do an episode on a remnant of Swedish history that we've found around us and we thought was very interesting and we would share with you, namely Swedish urban bomb shelters, which sounds like a very anorak kind of very niche topic, but it is very interesting. Exactly, and much like with our first special episode about Swedish civilian dog tags, we've discovered something in our home that is a reminder of an aspect of Swedish history, and we thought it was so interesting that we wanted to talk about it right away. Yes, and that first special episode that also was talking about, if you haven't listened to it already, was between episode 10 and 11 in our regular chronological list. Whilst it's not directly connected to what we're talking about today with the bomb shelters, there are definitely similarities in that both things and both topics concern Swedish military history and military relationship with urban and social society and how it had an impact on civilians' lives. So special episode one was certainly very interesting, so do go back and listen to it. It gives a good bit of context for this episode. So, like most of our listeners know, Orsa and I have recently moved to Stockholm, where we're living in a flat, after living in London. And we discovered something really interesting in our basement. We have a proper Cold War-style bomb shelter, or room, literally protection room, as the Swedes call it, in our basement. Uh, meaning that in case if we wake up one day and hear bombs falling around us or the air raid siren goes off, we can run down and sit in our shelter along with all of our neighbours. Now, this seems like a very unlikely thing to happen in Sweden, what Chris just described, that we would wake up one day and there'd be a bomb raid. Um, After all, Sweden is a country famous for its long peace, neutrality and friendly coexistence with its neighbours. So we got curious as to why these shelters were built and even more so why they remain here until this very day. So we should mention that we live in a very ordinary block of flats in a very ordinary part of Stockholm, just outside the city centre. There's nothing special about our building or the area where we live. We don't live next to a palace or anything. So there should be no special reason to protect this place. And that's what makes this story even more interesting, that this is just a regular, day-to-day, normal fact of life for Swedish buildings and people living in Sweden. So should we look at what this room actually looks like? If you could probably tell, it's very echoey because it's literally a bomb shelter. Yeah, so we've come down from the outside, down a set of flight of stairs and in through a door, and we're in the basement. There is a sign. Do you want to describe the sign? So it says Hwidsrum, and then it has an orange square with a blue triangle inside it. Uh, The blue triangle doesn't touch the edges of the orange square, so it's sort of just like two shapes inside each other. 
And on the wall next to the entrance to the bomb shelter, there's two sort of looks like air intake valves or something like that. And then as we go in, I nearly have to duck. Um, if I stand completely tall in the in the doorway, my head is very nearly on the door frame itself. And then we have to walk through this huge metal steel door and the doorway itself is probably a meter wide and I can just about fit through it if I don't hold my arms out sideways. Yeah and as we go through the entrance the wall is about 50 centimeters thick. Yeah it's very thick actually probably yeah roughly that and on the inside it's lined with metal the door frame is metal and then we have this huge door which uh Yep, that's also knocking on the door. It's, I don't know, how thick is that door? It's probably about 10 centimeters thick, all metal, and then it has two huge uh, sort of like wheels or handles on them that it would you would presumably lock it uh, from the inside with. And then it also has another sign which says, um, in Swedish, it says... In Swedish, it says, Protection Room Equipment. Equipment and materials for this protection room can be found in room, and then there's sort of a space where someone has, in handwriting, filled in, can be found here in the protection room. And then see the map, and there isn't a map. And so on one side of the door, as you come in, is a very old-school light switch, and there's two sort of um, air tubes... But we should also say that it's currently being used as a bike storage room. Uh, so these bikes are probably the best protected bikes in Northern Europe, I imagine. Uh, because, yeah, there's about 40, 30 bikes. Yeah, and we've now come into a, an, an inner room. Yeah, so the, as, you, as you come in the first door, there's a little sort of entry hallway, which only has three bikes standing in it and then you come through another metal door which is not as heavy as the neck as the first door it's slightly less so if you can tell the difference in the sound of the banging this one's a little thinner and it only has one little lock on it and and it's very it's got a green floor and yellow walls and it's pretty grim really it's not very nice place i guess yeah, I'm a bit claustrophobic, so I'm quite pleased that we don't have to close that thick door that was then uh, we saw on our way in, because I think if we did, I would start to feel uh, quite uncomfortable. It's okay now. Yeah, because there's obviously no windows. Um, that's another key thing, because we are underground. Um, yeah, so this is a very typical shelter or structure for Swedish urban areas and in 1940 actually so 80 years ago uh, or by the time you're listening to this episode 81 years ago Swedish army captain called Shell Magnell he was the fortifications officer and founder of the National Aerial Protection Association and he constructed guidelines on how the shelters should be built yeah so they should be a room or rooms, like in this case there's two, in the basement of buildings, enhanced with concrete and structured in a way that they could withstand the collapse of the building above if that building was hit directly. Furthermore, there should be two exits, which actually this shelter doesn't have. There's just one exit. Unless there's a secret exit that's behind that door. There's a storage room that's locked with a big padlock. So maybe the second exit is over there. But 
could be, or just that this hasn't been built quite according to those guidelines. Yeah, Captain Magnell is angry with the builders of this apartment block. <laughs> Furthermore, according to his guidelines, the shelters should have heavy steel doors, a ventilation system, and first aid and fire equipment should be stored here, ready to use, along with gas masks. I don't think we have any gas masks here, but... Um... We still don't know what's behind that door with the padlock on it that could be where the gas masks are kept. Not very helpful that it's uh, locked by a padlock. I don't have the key. No, I want to find out who has the key. But should we head back up to the flat? I think we should. Uh, And on the way, we'll walk and... uh say hello to our new neighbour, the snowman that's outside, and it literally is only about a 20-second walk back to our apartment. We're in close proximity for when the bombs do arrive. Yeah, because whilst this is a very interesting room, it's not the best room to record a podcast in. As you can tell, it's quite echoey. It's also fairly cold, and I'm wearing a hat and scarf and my big winter coat, so uh, that shows you how not very cosy this room is. Uh, Okay, right, so let's start walking back up to the flat. I think we should turn off the lights and make it even darker in here. Yeah, with the old school light switch. And the second light. There we go. We don't close the doors this time, so we have easy access to the bikes. Time to go outside. Excellent, and it's very cold outside, and lots of neighbours are getting the ice and the snow off their cars. So let's walk up and say hello to the snowman. Oh, the snowman has had a friend arrive. There's a smaller snowman now, so there's a big snowman. He has two arms reaching out towards the sky and carrying a walking stick and then there's a small snowman or maybe just a circle of snow on top of another circle of snow um yeah i don't think it's necessarily in a snowman or it might be it's got arms i think it's a the snowman has had a friend arrive this morning now i should say i timed this and if we were to just rush from our flat to the shelter if there was a sort of a real life emergency uh, it took 45 seconds that was putting on your coat and shoes and uh, also running when there was no ice so i think you'd have to be a little bit more careful if we were doing it today but but i think the idea is that we could be in the shelter in under a minute which is pretty good uh, so we go back inside and finish continue from then on we'll post a picture of this snowman uh, on the social media of course because he's excellent So yes, we're now back inside the flat. And whilst I'm sure it's the best place to be if you're being bombed, it's not necessarily the cosiest of places, our bomb shelter. Yeah, I'm a lot cosier here. It's nice and warm inside the flat. So now to get on to more of the in-depth look at Sweden's bomb shelters. And it is quite in-depth, so there's a lot of stuff that we have to tell you. So... The main question, really, where we begin is why does Sweden, a country, as we said, famous for its peace, have these shelters in blocks of flats and buildings to begin with and to this very day? The idea that we would hear the air raid siren and have to don gas masks and spend a night in the shelter while enemy planes destroy Stockholm seems incredibly alien to us today. 
but it does speak volumes of Sweden's history and Sweden's quite recent history, in fact. It does, because this is all over. Like we said, it's not that there's anything special about where we live. Uh, in fact, according to the Myndighet för Samhällsskydd och Beredskap, or in English, the Swedish Civil Contingencies Agency, there are around 65,000 of these shelters registered as being in use. In use in the sense that they exist and function, not in use as in we hang out there. That means that some 70% of Sweden's population can be covered by these shelters. And that's pretty much all of Sweden's urban population. Not quite, but almost. And Because as we'll see, this is very much an urban phenomenon. When we noticed this in our basement, it sort of registered with me that they existed because... I had forgotten about these shelters. Having grown up in Sweden, they were sort of there but never thought of. I remember my grandparents' basement looked very much like ours, where we live now, and that also had a bomb shelter. I remember I used to think it was scary to go down there because of the very heavy door. In my primary school, one of the classrooms was actually a bomb shelter. We never thought of it, really. I mean, it had the sign outside, just like uh, what we saw here, and it had incredibly thick walls and a huge door, but I guess when you're eight, you don't really think much about stuff like that. Did you have to practice running inside? No. No? Okay. So it was just a room. It It was just a room, and I don't think they ever explained to us, yeah, why it had much thicker walls than all the other classrooms. But luckily, there is one person who's done a lot of research on these Swedish air shelters, and that's a historian called Peter Bernesfeld. And it's from his book, Sheltered Society, Civilian Air Raid Shelters in Sweden, From Idea to Materiality, 1918 to 1940 and Beyond, the longest title perhaps in existence of a book. Um, This is where we're getting a lot of our information from that we're presenting to you today in this episode, one that also has been pouring over recently in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I've really, really gone all in for this in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Peter Benesved's book is brilliant. It is written in English and it's available online. So if you want to learn more about this after hearing today's episode, then please go check it out. Uh, It obviously talks about Sweden, but you learn a lot about civilian air raid shelters and aerial protection in general throughout the 20th century and in other parts of the world. And you learn about the impact of the concept of total war and what impact that had on people's lives and on our urban spaces. It's incredibly interesting. I have been getting regular reports of various chapters that you've been reading because this has very much been your episode uh, looking into this one. But um, yeah, so I guess we should start off with the history of our air raid shelter that we just visited. It was built in 1954 when this whole block of flats where we live was built. But the history of air raid shelters starts before then. And to understand why we ended up having one where we live, we really do need to look at how they came about to begin with. For much of history, war was predominantly a military affair. Men were called up and went abroad and served in foreign fields and died on battlefields. 
of course, civilian life and civilian families and people would be affected because warfare often had economic consequences that led to starvation and hardship back home. And the need for soldiers meant a loss of male workforce and hardship for individuals and communities. Of course, that's not even beginning on the fact that armies on the march would plunder and destroy towns and cities that they passed and places would be invaded and civilians terrorised. But the actual warfare and the combat was still most confined to the military. Soldiers fought other soldiers on the battlefield, and occasionally those were in towns, but it was usually on battlefields, and that was the idea that was generally agreed on and occurred. But all of this began to change in the late 1800s. The change was due to several things, but it was partly a consequence of technological advancement. There were new weapons that had such a long range they could hit targets from miles away, thus enabling enemy armies to fire on the enemy from far away from the front lines. One of the first examples of this is the bombardment of Paris during the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871. This meant that civilians, the enemy's population, could become either an indirect or a direct target in war. This would become even more apparent during the First World War, but before then, the idea of civilians being seen as fair targets, so to speak, in this new age of modern warfare was a serious concern. Just how serious can be seen by the fact that the first Hague Convention on the Rules of War, a forerunner to sort of like the Geneva Convention, was in 1899, and this primarily concerns the question of civilian bombardment by land or naval-based artillery. As the laws were updating, so was civil society itself. Yes, just like Chris is saying, as the 19th century became the 20th century, the battlefield had expanded to include civilians, and as a consequence, there was a need to protect said civilians shelters and bunkers and all these different kinds of protection from your enemy had long been a feature of soldiers lives but now they needed to expand them to also include civilians two other technical developments that ushered in civilian shelters and eventually the type of air raid shelter that we find in our basement was the invention of aerial warfare and the use of poisonous gas, both of which really got introduced to the world in the most horrible of ways during the First World War. And it's after World War I, in the early 1920s, that we see the first traces of civilian air raid shelters being discussed in Sweden. At first it's discussed almost like a theoretical concept by professors and fortification officers and other military professionals. It's discussed as something new that the country needs to be aware of, a new phenomenon almost, not something as practical as, okay, let's go and build 10,000 shelters tomorrow. Even though that will happen, it's not what was directly in the diary for these Swedish soldiers and civilians in the first few days after the First World War. Indeed, because after World War I, Sweden, although we had been neutral and not directly involved in the war, we had seen what happened on the continent. Politicians, military officers, and even the general population had, albeit not firsthand, but in reports, seen the horrendous use of poisonous gas, the advancement of airplanes, and the ability to drop death from the skies. That was perhaps most important, the fact that they had seen 
German bombing raids on Paris and London in 1915, they had seen that war nowadays came from the sky and it came from the sky into the big cities of the belligerent nations. And those people who happen to live there, they need somewhere to go and hide and try to protect themselves when bombs start to rain from the sky. Yeah, I think the image of the Zeppelin is one of the biggest and long-standing images of World War One in popular and historical imagination. But all of these developments meant that the writing really is on the wall after World War One. But this idea of total war, of attacking civilians in a direct way, was still very new. And like everything else that's new, it's clear when looking back at history that some people are getting used to the idea of the notion of it before they'd even seen it in practice. So in the 1920s and early 1930s, Sweden started to debate the need for air raid shelters for the civilian population. And it's a debate that's carried out in a wide range of places in society. It's partly conducted by the military, but at the same time, there are elements within the military that really aren't that bothered with the idea, or at least with turning it from idea to reality. The military don't think civilian protection is their job. It's also debated by engineers and architects because in the end it's up to them and the advancements within their fields and availability of raw materials to make these buildings and make the shelters possible. Uh, The question is also debated politically, but again, there's no real force behind turning it from theory to reality. Instead, much of the interwar period in Sweden is coloured by cuts in the defence budget and a focus on diplomatic and peaceful solutions, like being very invested in the League of Nations. And finally, there are individuals, civilians, who debate this and take their own initiatives. In Stockholm, for example, the place that would be to Sweden in case of war, what Paris and London had been in 1915, in Stockholm, the Association of Stockholm's Permanent Defence, which is a private organisation in existence since 1902, That organization campaigns and raises funds for various civilian and military defenses around the capital. And by the 20s and 30s, they start to get involved in civilian air raid protection. In general, the period from the end of the First World War to the late 1930s is characterized by various initiatives being taken forward. Some actually involved real concrete being poured and buildings being made, and some were military officers and engineers going on study trips, mainly to Germany, to learn more about their shelters and bringing these ideas and techniques with them back to Sweden. But there's no great unity with this progress, especially not politically, about what to do in terms of air raid shelters. 
On the contrary, there's a fair amount of criticism, both from pacifist voices within the workers' movement and the Social Democratic Party, and on the liberal side, that see air raid shelters as a militarization of society and a way of provoking warfare instead of focusing on peace initiatives and the diplomacy that Sweden had been focusing on for a, a good hundred years by that point. Yeah, and then again, it's not just on the topic of air raid shelters that there's no great unity in Sweden in the 1910s, 20s and 30s. There was really no great unity on anything. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to the period where we have a new prime minister every six weeks almost at various points in the early 1900s in Sweden. It it makes modern-day Britain look like a beacon of stability. Definitely. As we'll see in future episodes, this is a period of societal and political turmoil where Sweden is even on the brink of revolution at some points. Eventually things do calm down and by the end of the 1930s, again, the writing is pretty much on the wall that something is about to happen. Whilst I don't think anyone predicted World War II, or at least to the extent that it ended up unfolding, and at least no one in Sweden did, the fact that the situation in Europe was becoming a pretty unstable powder keg, that became more and more apparent. What does seem to be the big wake-up call for Sweden is the bombing of Guernica during the Spanish Civil War. We don't have the scope to go into that into any real detail now, other than to say that it was an intense bombing raid in April of 1937 on the small northern Spanish town of Guernica, conducted by nationalist Spanish forces, the German Luftwaffe's Condor Legion and the fascist Italian Air Force. Just by chance, Sweden happened to have some of their best writers at the time stationed as war correspondents in Spain, such as author's favourite Barbara Olving. Indeed, an amazing journalist and all-round cool woman. Her and her colleagues' accounts of the effects that these bombing raids had on the civilian population and the need to hide in basement air raid shelters provided really vivid accounts for both the general population and people in positions of power back in Sweden. So by the time we get to the late 1930s, after these episodes, and especially with the official guidelines we talked about from earlier in 1940, the building of air raid shelters took off in Sweden. This largely actually coincides with a huge building boom that was going on in Sweden in any case. Sweden at this point is transforming from a poor, largely agrarian society at the start of the century to become an industrial urban society in just a few decades. And that's good from an air raid shelter point of view, because you can just say all new houses have to have air raid shelters in the basement. And because there are so many new houses going up in a short period of time, you're going to get a lot of new shelters built and a lot of the population actually covered by them. And by the late 1930s, there's also been a huge advancement in ventilation systems, which means you can build large shelters that fit many people in them, under public buildings, for example, without running out of oxygen, which is very key to keeping your civilians alive, is make sure they can actually breathe when they're in the shelter. And these ventilation systems also meant you could protect them from poisonous gas, like we talked about earlier. And that's still an important part of the shelter's functions, like what we saw downstairs in our shelter. So these improvements are helping as well. 
Speaking of, you mentioned shelters under public buildings. That's relevant to highlight that it wasn't just under private homes that these shelters were being built. There was famously, it's probably still there, I'm assuming, an air raid shelter under the parliament building for all the members of parliament to go and hide in. Uh, there are some great photos in Beneved's book of the sign for the shelter on this old parliament building. It's a sort of beautiful clash of something very modern being brought into this old building. You might think that we only talk about blocks of flats and public buildings and it's all very urban and Stockholm and cities, but what about people who live in the countryside on farms or in more sort of villa or bungalow style housing? Are they just going to be left to die? They don't get any shelters? Well, air raid shelters were very much an urban phenomenon, not just in Sweden, but it's perhaps especially noticeable here. The idea is, and that's based on real-life events from the First World War, the Spanish Civil War, and later the Second World War, that it is predominantly urban areas that will be targeted by aerial attacks. If you live on a farm in rural north-central Sweden, you don't get an air raid shelter simply because it's less likely you'll be attacked. Yeah, and you can still see evidence of that today. Ben Neved in his book has a brilliant map where the location of air raid shelters in the country is is marked in uh, with dots and the redder an area gets the more dots there are the more shelters are in that area and you can really see where different towns and cities are and you see how it's the coastal areas and the south central area that is colored on the map whereas in the north and in the inland, there are large swathes of essentially no shelters at all. So by the time World War II rolls around, Sweden is building air raid shelters left, right and centre. And not just for civilian use, but as the threat of war loomed, the Swedish armed forces were quickly beefing up their capabilities, which included building various defence fortifications and bunkers all around the country. In fact, earlier this month, it was the 75th anniversary of a huge underground factory that was built by a Swedish company called Saab, who made all of Sweden's air fighters during the Second World War and continue to do so up till this day. And to protect the factory and ensure the production of their fighter planes, the factory was built underground in a huge bunker. So every part of society was involved in this digging and concrete building. Yeah, and where I'm from, on the Swedish south coast, there is a very visible element of this that remains today. In 1939, the Skåne line, or as it's known colloquially, the Per Albin Hansson line, named after the prime minister at the time, it's a more than 500 kilometer long fortification line that runs all along the coast. This line had lots of different structures and 
bases and fortifications all the way along it, mainly including machine gun positions, anti-tank weapons and observation towers. Many of them remained to be used all the way through the Cold War where they were waiting to be manned by the Swedish military looking out to sea to see if the Soviets were coming across the Baltic Sea. In fact, the vast majority are still there today. They've been decommissioned, but lots of concrete bunkers are still right down by these lovely summery beaches. So you can go and sit on top of them during the day and have a nice break. Yeah, so when we do go to the beach, these uh, structures are are still there as a reminder of uh, our recent past. They're quite nice to sit and sunbathe on, actually. Uh, We'll see if we can find some pictures to put on social media so that you get a better idea of what they actually look like. But back to the air raid shelters. It wasn't just in Sweden, obviously, that air raid shelters and other kinds of fortifications in the landscape became a fact of life during World War II. In many parts of the world, air raid shelters would be integral to the civilian war experience. Many of us are perhaps more familiar with the images from Britain of families in their so-called Anderson shelters, a small hut-like construction made out of sheets of corrugated steel that people were asked to put up in their back gardens, or indeed the images from the London Underground stations where people slept on the platforms during bomb raids. Yeah, I still remember my great-grandmother's Anderson shelter in her back garden. I was just about old enough to remember going there. She lived to 100, and I was about 10 when she died. So I still remember going to her back garden and seeing her bomb shelter. She had kept hers uh, all the years after the war. Yeah, she kept hers. I think it was used as sort of like a pantry sort of thing. Both of my grandmothers on both sides of my family, they're both from South London and they both got stories of um, having to run to the shelter in the back garden. My father's mother, she was nearly bombed by a V1 bomb which landed in the garden next to her and my mum's mum school was bombed and they had to go to school in a church for two years because uh, the school was blown up by German bombing so yeah so it's something my family very much has direct experience of in living memory but back to Sweden since Sweden had debated the idea of the air raid shelters being used for the public since the 1920s but not actually gotten around to start building them until the late 1930s and especially after 1940 It's debatable if there was actually enough around had Sweden been bombed during the early stages of World War II for it to be effective. No, and in a way we will never know how effective the Swedish bomb shelters would have been because, well, they never got tested in reality. Uh, Sweden was never invaded and never bombed during World War II and... The reasons for that will no doubt be a topic for many, many episodes when we get to that on our chronological journey. But during the war, there were several drills, especially in bigger cities like Stockholm, uh, on how to use the shelters. And that meant that this concept, the idea of the basement shelter uh, that looked a certain way, it became firmly entrenched in the minds of Swedes living in cities. The Swedish shelters were also different to the ones in the UK, and in particular, 
to those that became more well-known in the United States during the Cold War in the sense that they were communal. The Swedish basement shelters were built to fit an entire building in, so you were meant to sit in there with your neighbours, and the civil defence plan was based on the idea that people were gathered together in larger groups. In the UK and the US, on the other hand, shelters were much more individual and built to protect just one family and maybe their neighbours at a push with the Anderson shelters. It could be argued, and indeed historians have argued, that this is indicative of different ways of thinking about society in general in uh, the English-speaking world like in Britain and America, the focus was more on the individual and the concept of the nuclear family, whereas in Sweden, in particular during the heydays of the Social Democratic Party and the labor movement now in the mid-20th century, the focus was on larger groups and communal efforts. And we didn't just share the same air raid shelter as our neighbors, Uh, To this day, actually, most of us who live in apartment buildings or in flats, we share the same washing machines as our neighbours. This is one of the most mind-bogglingly bizarre things about moving to Sweden, is that they have these things called tvättstugas, or sort of like washing huts or washing rooms. So basically, next to the bomb shelter in our apartment building, there's a huge washer room. And it has three washing machines, two tumble dryers, a drying room, this weird drying cabinet thing and a mangle. And you basically go up to the computer screen outside and you book it for three hours at a time, um, any time during the week. And you have the whole room to yourself. So you don't wash any clothes in your house. You go down to this. It's genuinely impressive. It's really it's like going to a dry cleaners and having your whole your whole week's washing done in this really professional room with all of this amazing kit but yeah you share it with your neighbors and so if you forget to book it book a slot for this week then you can't do any washing because that's where your washing machine is in this communal washroom right next to the communal bunker yeah and it's important to keep it tidy so that you don't annoy your neighbors yeah, there's usually passive-aggressive notes being put up saying, please remember to clean the filter for the tumble dryer and don't leave your dirty, wet washing here and forget to come and pick it up. So, yeah, I think the historians that have pointed to, especially the difference uh, with the US, where you have much more sort of individual homes and uh, these famous Cold War-type uh, shelters where... In the nuclear family ran into here in Sweden the idea was that we we all gathered I mean I, I like my neighbors but I hate to think that I'm forced to spend night after night with them all in that shelter that we just visited but that was the idea this idea of communal use of space yes and after World War II, Sweden's rapid urbanisation continued at an even greater pace until we eventually get to the period where we are at today, where 87% of Swedes live in an urban area or a town or a city, and there's only really three big cities that would be called a city anywhere else, so the population is really concentrated. By international comparison, these towns and cities are generally still quite small. By the time we reach the 1960s, we get what the Swedes call the Million Programme, 
or in English, the project of a million, where a million new homes, predominantly blocks of flats and terraced houses in these towns and cities, were built. And because of the laws that we spoke about previously, all of these new homes came with air raid shelters. So this is when we got our air raid shelter as part of this building boom when our block of flats in a nice quiet area with lots of pretty nature at a commutable distance from Stockholm city centre was built in 1954. In many ways our area is a perfect example of this post-war building boom and for the people who moved here in 1954 of course they should have an air raid shelter. I think they took it for granted in their new built home along with central heating and electric cookers and all the other mod cons that this flat no doubt came with because just because World War II was over the threat of having death raining down from the sky had not decreased. And on the contrary for Sweden in particular with the Cold War and the threat of total nuclear annihilation these threats grew even bigger on the day-to-day sort of consciousness of the population and that meant that the shelters became more important than ever partly to comfort the population to put it in simple terms the shelter was a sign that yes you might see scary things on the tv with kennedy and khrushchev pointing missiles at each other but don't worry we've got you covered with this handy shelter in your basement yeah the shelters were either newly built or updated to accommodate this threat of nuclear war but again we don't know how efficient they would have been but sweden spent a lot of research and money on trying to make them the best they could be the shelters themselves and the fact that there were so many of them also became an important symbol of swedish politics during the cold war Sweden pursued a path of neutrality and non-allegiance during the Cold War. The country has never joined NATO, for example. But at the same time, for the country's size in general, it had a very large army and navy, and particularly an air force. And it enforced universal military service for all men, had a large proportion of the government focusing on civilian defence, of which the air raid shelters were the most notable and day-to-day symbol. The political idea behind this was that in order to be taken seriously in its neutrality, Sweden had to show force behind it. Passive resistance, it was sometimes referred to, a sort of way of saying, we won't get involved, but if you poke us, we'll bite you back. Yes, and Sweden was also very, very aware of its geographical location. The fact that the USSR, because... Let's remember that at the time, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania made up part of the USSR. It was just a few hours away, on the other side of the Baltic Sea. Again, we will no doubt spend many episodes talking about Sweden during the Cold War in the future, but for the time being, it might suffice to say that Sweden was aware that our position was a bit like living in a flat between two neighbours, who hate each other and could barge in and mess it up at any time. Uh, You need to both find a way to be friendly with both neighbours and have a thick door if that's where you're going to live. Or at least that's Sweden's general thought was during the Cold War. So this is pretty much the story behind why we today in 2021 have an air raid shelter in our basement. 
it started over a hundred years ago, and by the time our flat was built, some sixty years ago, it was really representative of the threat and the geopolitical situation that was a fact of life for Swedes and the Swedish government during the twentieth century. In fact, the rule that all new buildings had to have shelters built with them was only abolished in 2002, and we've not been able to figure out exactly how the ones that still exist are maintained, or how often they are. As we saw with our shelter, though, it's not that they're just used as dead space waiting for a war. They're usually turned into a bike storage or something like that. That seems to be a quite a popular way of using these uh, very safe spaces. Yeah, we have bikes protected by uh, very thick walls. Uh, no nuclear fallout will get to the bike, perhaps. Nope. Our bike is very safe in Sweden. But whilst the shelters might not be built anymore, I'd still say that civil defence is more visible in Sweden than in some other countries. For example, the air raid sirens are still tested here. Four times every year, the first non-bank holiday Monday in March, June, September and December, Viktigt Mederlanda till Almanheta, important message to the public, is signalled across the country. It consists of a seven-second long loud beep, then 14 seconds of silence, and then it starts again for a total of two minutes. And in fact, I heard it at work for the first time ever the other day. Um, we were all sitting there and we all knew that at three o'clock on this Monday, that siren is going to go off. And so all across central Stockholm, you could hear this beep, 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 and then a stop, and then that again for two whole minutes. So it's, yeah, it's very, very um, interesting. But yeah, in this supposedly super peaceful country in Northern Europe, they have air race siren tests four times a year yeah i don't know of any other place that still does that if we have listeners from countries where uh, yeah you still test air raid sirens or other features of the civil defense like that uh, let us know because i've never heard it anywhere but in sweden it's nicknamed hesa fredrik or Frederick with a sore throat in English and it's such a fact of life that I don't really think about it uh, why, but at the same time yes I think if I came to Sweden as a tourist and happened to come on one of these four days I would probably get quite scared if I just all of a sudden heard the air raid siren <laughs> For the first 10 seconds or so, you'd get a bit confused and then you'd realise, you'd try and maybe work out what it was and then you'd be like, okay, is this real? This is very odd. I think that the fear of war, especially the fear of nuclear war that stems from the Cold War, has left its mark on Swedes. And perhaps this testing of the air raid siren is just the last remainder of that. I have elderly relatives, people who grew up during the Second World War and then lived the majority of their adult lives during the Cold War, who will say with 100% certainty, still to this day, you know, they can be here at any moment, they being an enemy invasion. And it makes me both sad and it fascinates me that people of this famously peaceful country live in such a fear of war, or at least lived. I'm not sure about how younger people feel today, 
But we have all these physical reminders of war, the shelters, the testing of the sirens. Perhaps it makes us more aware. I think Swedes are very aware of the fortunes of our long peace, but perhaps we're equally aware of how those fortunes might change. Yes, and the air raid shelters are an interesting sign of how objects around us in our day-to-day life tell us about our history, just like the dog tags did in our previous special episode. Peter Bernersfeld concludes his book by stating what he argues his research shows and says that, finally, above all, the history of the Swedish air raid shelter shows that the study of even the most dull and uninspiring material artefacts of the 20th century can provide us with a profound insight about the society in which we live. And we definitely both agree that you can take anything around you, an object or a phenomenon, study its history, and it will tell you something about how we got to where we are today. And that's an amazing thing that we can do just by looking at where we live. And it's been really cool that we've been able to look at this bunker today. Yeah, this has been a fascinating subject to research and learn more about. We hope you've enjoyed this little sidetrack from our usual journey through Swedish history and like we said do find Peter Benesved's book online if you want to learn more but just in case you're thinking we'd forgotten we've got to do the Swedish phrase of the week because we didn't really want to say it in the bunker and we wanted to start off the episode in the bunker this time rather than having two different transitions so should we get on with the phrase for this week? We should. This week's phrase is Alla tjänar apan, men apan tjänar ingen. And that translates to English as Everyone knows the monkey, but the monkey knows no one. Which is a bit strange. Was there a famous monkey that this is based on? And how come he didn't know anybody? <laughs> well, the phrase is used to mean that People know you, but you don't know them. Uh, The state of knowing each other is not equal, so to say. An example might be that, say for example, you're a university lecturer. Every week you might meet thousands of students. They all know you. They know what you look like because you stand in front of them giving lectures for hours. They know your name because it's on all the paperwork. They know what you teach, etc., etc. But you don't know the names and details of all the thousands of students and you might only vaguely recognize their faces. So then if one of them comes up to you and talks to you like they know you really well, uh, because to them that's the case, but you don't know who this person is. So in that example, you're the monkey who everybody knows, but you don't know anyone. So you might then say, I'm sorry, you know, everybody knows the monkey, but the monkey doesn't know anyone. What's your name? Would people ever actually say that in real life? When is, is it ever, have you ever heard anyone use it? Yeah, no, it's, it's quite a used phrase. So you would say that to someone's face. You would yeah. say monkey doesn't know everybody or something like if if you're the monkey yeah yeah people would, yeah, would actually say yeah. that that's really i mean odd. we can hear from other swedes who listen to this if they use the phrase maybe but... they're not popular enough uh, <laughs> or well known enough maybe they are not a monkey but like a pig nobody uh-huh. knows the pig and the pig knows nobody <laughs> maybe we should that be a phrase <laughs> that's a phrase that you now just uh, invented yeah um 
ingen känner grisen och grisen känner ingen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's again hear from our Swedish listeners. Do you think uh, that should be a phrase that takes off in Swedish? <laughs> But let's uh, yeah. maybe leave the pigs and the monkeys and the phrases and move on. Yes, because before we say goodbye, we need to say hello to Carlos now in Sweden, but previously of Spain, who's left us a lovely five-star review on iTunes. And we apologize for not reading this out sooner because, as we know, iTunes ranks and categorizes all the reviews by country. And we didn't think to look on Spain, even though we know we've had one or two downloads from Spain, obviously Carlos now. So we didn't look to see if any Spaniards had written us a review. But Carlos has written that he is just arrived in Sweden and I'm very much enjoying this podcast that navigates through the history of this great country in such an entertaining and informative way. Thanks to Orsa and Chris's narrations, I know a lot more about Sweden's history and about Swedish expressions too. Thanks for this, guys. Well done. So thank you, Carlos, and I hope you're enjoying your time in Sweden and wonder if you've found your local bomb shelter yet, depending on where you're living. Sí, muchas gracias a Carlos. Nos alegra mucho que disfrutes el podcast y que has aprendido más sobre la historia de Suecia. Agradecemos mucho tu amable comentario. Eh, y muchas gracias a todos nuestros oyentes en el mundo hispanohablante. Eh, espero que sigan escuchando. I think that was also showing off that she's also fluent in Spanish as well as English and uh, Swedish and other languages. But yes, that was thank you to Carlos and hello to all of our other Spanish-speaking listeners. But before that, we're back in two weeks' time with a, another slightly different episode because two weeks' time will be one year since we released our first episode, which is super exciting. So we're just going to do a bit of a recap of what we've learned so far and our favorite and perhaps funniest stories that we've learned and told you in this first year. Yes, we're going to have a bit of a first year celebration, a one year birthday party for the podcast. Uh, we should get cake. Yeah, we should maybe get cake. But I also want to know how many people are still listening now who were one of our first ever listeners when we released the first episode, if that makes sense. So are there people who downloaded us when there was only one episode to listen to and are still listening now? So you've been on this journey in real time, whereas some people have only just discovered us recently and have had 25-odd episodes to binge listen to. So two things that you can do on our social media or via email till next time. First of all, let us know if you have been with us from the start, so since January of 2020, or indeed when you found us and started listening, and uh, give us suggestions for what cake we should eat when we celebrate the podcast's first birthday. Yes, maybe a microphone-shaped cake. You can make that, not me. <laughs> I will. I think we should leave it up to the listeners to decide what cake we have at the birthday party. Yeah, sure. But yeah, until then, have a good start of 2021 and we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time with a bit of a recap. Yes, bye-bye. Adios. Hey, Dale.